Amen. Well, if you were blessed by the worship this morning, say amen. Amen. Amazing to have the kids with us, leading us in worship, as Pastor Greg said. And so what a blessing we were able to do that this morning. Uh, We are in week two of our four-week series, Back to the Basics. And if you would like to follow along uh, for notes' sake, there are notes available on our app. You can go to our app, North Goodland, BC, and then under Media, Sermon Notes, and find today's date. Um, This series, again, as we talked about last week, uh, we really want to get back to the core essentials and reaffirm those essentials of the Christian faith and talk about what is it that makes us followers of Christ and how do we live that out in our world today. And so last week we started with our firm foundation, that we have a foundation that our lives in Christ are built upon. And that foundation is discovered and established in our lives through receiving Christ and his gospel. So by receiving Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, by confessing and repenting of my sins, which means I acknowledge I have sinned before God, I repent, that means I turn from my sins, and I ask the Lord to save me, and believing that he died on the cross for my sins, was buried and rose again, and that by simple belief and faith in that, I receive his grace, which is that mercy, that understanding that he's going to forgive me, not because of what I've done to earn his forgiveness, Because we can't earn his forgiveness. But by receiving that grace, we are given new life. We are brought to life in Christ. And that life is eternal. And one day, as followers of Christ, those that know Christ as our Savior, one day we will leave this world. Now that may be through natural causes. That may be through a disease or some other means that God has willed that that take place. It may be by him just taking us home and receiving us in the rapture. Whatever it is. We know that one day we will leave this world. And as followers of Christ, we have a great hope. Not, I hope, like I wish upon a star hope, but a hope and a guarantee and a promise revealed in God's word that if we come to Christ and receive the gift of salvation, we have eternal life that we will not perish, that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And when we leave this place, we will see him and we will be like him. That we will be like him in the sense of we will have understanding. We will have all wisdom that we need. We will live for eternity in his presence. And that is a great guarantee, a great hope, and a great promise to those who have received Christ. The alternative, because the reality is your soul was made to last forever. And it will last forever somewhere. The reality is if we know Christ, we will spend eternity with him. But if we do not know Christ, then the Bible says, Jesus said, that those who do not receive his salvation will be cast away into outer darkness, a place literally called hell. And there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth and this idea of torment and suffering. And we choose by rejecting Christ, we choose that as our eternal state. And so ultimately, God has graciously given you breath in your lungs and opportunity right now before God's word and before his, his spirit working in your heart and mind. Will you receive Christ or will you reject Christ? And one day, as I've already established, you will lose that breath in your lungs. One day, the life that you've been leased is going to give an account. You see, this life isn't really your life. It's been leased to you by God. He has given you this life. And what you do with it, you will give an account of before God. I will give an account before God. 
And I'm going to give an account. Am I in Christ or am I not in Christ? Have I received his grace and mercy or am I trying to pay for my sins on my own? And he will allow us to make that choice because he will not force his love on us. But yet what a gift that we could receive salvation and know heaven is our eternal home, not because of what we've done before we were saved or what we've done after we've been saved, but solely because of what Christ has done on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection. See, that's the foundation. That's how we, as followers of Christ, see our lives built upon that solid rock. And so many Christians come to Christ and they receive grace and they receive mercy and they understand salvation. And then they start living as though it's up to them. That they got to keep it. They got to keep earning it. They got to keep meriting it. They got to keep deserving it or they might lose it. But see, our foundation is not built on shifting sand where we can have and lose and regain and then lose again our salvation. Our salvation is built on the solid rock of Jesus Christ who there is no change. There's no shadow of turning. He says, you are in my hand and my hand is in the father's hand. He doesn't say until you do something I don't like and then I'll let you go. Ephesians 1 says that he gives us his spirit at the moment of salvation as a ceiling as a guarantee that our salvation is for eternity. Again, not because of what we do, but because he's already done for us through the gospel. So how do we avoid living in fear in our culture today? How do we avoid living in confusion and and all the chaos of the world around us? How do we avoid being stressed out every single day because things don't seem to go the way we want them to? How do we avoid living in fear of, why I blew it today, And what Pastor Greg prayed is so true. We are unfaithful, but God is faithful. We wander, we stumble, but God is true and never changing. And so how do we avoid living in all that chaos? We are built upon the foundation of the gospel. I don't fear what government will do tomorrow because I'm built on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. I'm not fearful of what the economy might happen or what might happen in the economy tomorrow because my hope and my Life is not built on the economy or what's in or rather not in, amen, my banking account. My life's not built upon what's in my driveway, the house I live in. And so many followers of Christ are living in fear, self-inflicted fear, because they're forgetting their life is not built on those things. And because their life is not built on those things, those things cannot take away their true value, their true worth, which is in Christ. And so that is our foundation. And we discovered that last week as we, again, go back to the basics. And I know you're sitting there like, well, preacher, I've been in church a long time. Some of you have been saved since you were children, four, five, six years old. And you've been saved for 30, 40, 50, 60 years. And you feel like, man, I, I know that, preacher. But so often we know these things, but practically we refuse to live them out. And we see that in how we respond to other people and how we respond to the situations in our culture. And so it's so healthy. It's so needful to, from time to time, go back to the basics, to reaffirm these core truths of the Christian faith, to help us to be reminded of who we are. And I will also say this, and I said it last week, I am not naive enough to think that there are not individuals either in the room right now or watching online that maybe have gone to church your whole life. 
You've heard the gospel. You could quote the scriptures better than I can. And yet there's no relationship. I've told this before, but there was a gentleman I met who was in his young 80s. Told me he had been attending church since he was a child. Gospel preaching churches. Churches that preached the gospel. He said, these are his words, almost every Sunday. Because I met him out in the lobby. He stepped out of communion one morning. He wasn't going to take communion. And I wasn't the pastor at the time. I was just, I was on staff here. And as the youth pastor, I was just kind of in the back. And so I kind of stepped out. I thought something maybe medically was wrong. I, I didn't know what was going on. So I went out and, can I help you? Is everything okay? And he said, oh, no, I'm not a Christian, so I don't take communion. Okay. Uh, well, hey, I appreciate your honesty. I said, can I ask, is there, has anyone ever showed you in God's word what Christ has done for you? And he said, oh, yeah, I know that. I said, oh, okay, so you know the gospel. He goes, oh, yeah, I've heard that since I was a kid. And again, every Sunday I heard it growing up. I've been in church my whole life. My wife's a believer, but I'm just not. And I said, well, can I ask a very honest question? What's keeping you from receiving Christ? In his young 80s, a whole life in church, he said to me, quote, I just like sinning too much. So I'm not naive enough to think that just because you show up Sunday after Sunday, Just because you open the Bible when we say to open the Bible that you know Christ, I pray you do. But if you don't know Christ, this morning, today can be the day of salvation. Coming to this building will not save you. Singing these songs will not save you. Your parents' salvation will not save you. Your spouse's salvation will not save you. Only a personal relationship with Jesus Christ will bring about salvation in your life. And so we covered that last week. That's our foundation. By the way, it's 1117. That was the first paragraph of the introduction. Ten minutes of that, not even in the notes. Y'all need to pray for me. Okay. So we discovered that. So what did we say last week? Once we know Christ, now we build on that foundation as Christ builds into us. And how does he do that? Well, we grow as a follower of a Christ by spending consistent time in his word Consistent time communicating with him in prayer and consistent and committed church involvement. So if you missed last week, you can go back and rewatch that and get all of that information. But those are the three things. Time in his word, time of prayer, involvement in church. Those three things, as easy and as simplistic as they are, will grow us as followers of Christ. But this morning, we are continuing to reaffirm the essentials of the Christian faith by realizing that in Christ, we are not only built on a firm foundation, but we are built to abide. John chapter 15. Turn there with me if you would. John chapter 15. I'm just going to read a couple of verses here. And if you're reading or using rather one of the Bibles provided, you can turn to page 757. So if you're using one of the Bibles provided in the seats there, page 757. John chapter 15, and we're just going to read verses 5 through 10. Now, Richard C., when he was here back in August, he read us this passage, or rather we read it with him, and he walked us through this passage. And so we're not going to spend a lot of time on those first few verses that he kind of unpacked for us, but I really want to kind of spend just a few moments in verses 5 through 10 of John 15. It says this, I am the vine, and you are the branches. He that abides in me, and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit. 
For without me, you can do nothing, not something, not some things, nothing. Now, that's not referring to doing good works that we would see as good works. Humanitarian efforts, the Red Cross. um, There's many, many things that people do that are good things that help people in need. What he is saying is he's saying you can't produce the fruit that I'm going to produce through you by the work of the Spirit without abiding in me. That fruit is specifically what he's talking about. So again, blasting fruit, eternal fruit, spiritual fruit cannot be produced without an abiding relationship in Christ. Verse 6, if a a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and he is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned because they've lost their purpose. They've lost their value. They're not able to do what they were created to do. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. We love that verse. We love the end of that verse rather. Man, the Bible says I can ask whatever I want and he'll do it. That's what the Bible says. No, the Bible says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask. So how do I ask the right things? By abiding in his word and his word in me. How do I avoid asking for things in the flesh that are just going to be consumed in my flesh and used for worldly pleasures that he's not going to answer those by abiding in him and his word abiding in me. Verse eight, herein is my father glorified. So that, that's kind of a, an attention grabber. Herein is my father glorified. So we need to really pay attention to the next thing that's being said because we want to glorify the father. So that you bear much fruit so shall you be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Continue you in my love. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Let's go to verse 11. I said verse 10, but verse 11 is important as well. These things have I spoken unto you. For what purpose, what end, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full, that we would have a joyful following of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray, Father, that you would be glorified in all that is said and done. Lord, give us wisdom and discernment as we dive through these topics this morning. Help us to know that we are built to abide, that we are on a firm foundation, that we're growing in that relationship with you. And that is causing us to abide in Christ, to leading us to continuing to abide in your word. And so father, help us to know that we were built and made for a purpose to glorify you, to glorify the father. Thank you. Not only for the love of the father, which is revealed in your word, but thank you also for your love to us that you loved us so much. You went to the cross for our sins was buried and rose again. You endured all of the suffering of the cross so that we might come to know you. And in that moment, your joy is full, which will lead to our joy being full. And so, Father, again, thank you for this morning and all that you're doing. May you guide and direct in all of this, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus tells his disciples that his true disciples, not just people that occasionally follow Christ. He's saying, if you're my followers, and by the way, in the Bible, there's no distinction between a Christian and a disciple. In our church culture, we've made a distinction there. In our church culture, people think, I'm a Christian, but I'm not a disciple. I'm a Christian, but I'm not a follower. 
we've, we've somewhere in church history, we've drawn a line there. That line doesn't exist in scripture. If you are a Christian, you are a disciple. And if you are a disciple, you are a discipler. Because if you're a follower of Christ, your goal is to lead others to become what? Followers of Christ. I cannot say I'm a follower of Christ if I'm not willing to put my life out there and let others become, through my example, followers of Christ. So Jesus says, if you're my disciples. Now, this phrasing is interesting because in the beginning part of the passage, he's already established that, that you are in me, in Christ. So by being in me, you are my disciple. You are abiding in me. That is the, the state of the follower of Christ. However, we can choose to say, well, today I'm not going to abide. Today I'm not going to follow because we get focused on self and on what we want. But we have available to us the opportunity to abide in Christ. So Jesus tells his disciples, that is his true disciples, that they will, they will abide in Christ, will abide. Not might or maybe or sometimes, they will. That is the state that is available to us. We are disciples or followers of Christ today and are called to the same abiding. That abiding began when we received the gospel and started walking with Christ, but it continues today. So how else is the church called to demonstrate that abiding that we just talked about? What is that fruit that shows we're abiding in Christ? Well, Jesus says that we will produce spiritual fruit. And that fruit shows our abiding relationship with Christ. That fruit is sharing our faith. Amen? And when I share my faith in that person's life, I don't save anyone to be saved. Somebody else can convince them not to be saved or not to believe. I'm sharing the gospel. The spirit of God is working in that person's heart and mind. I might say all the right things, have all the best arguments, all the best answers. And the person look at me and say, well, I just don't believe. And at the end of the day, that's the choice they are making. And we have to be okay with that choice. If that's the choice they make, okay to the sense of I'm not going to keep beating someone up with it. I need to be willing to say, okay, well, I'm going to pray for you that God would open your heart and mind to these things. And then what we do is we communicate that gospel through serving them as best we can. Not just to get them to convert, but because we show them that they have value and worth as one of God's created beings. And so again, we see that as part of this fruit, sharing of our faith. Also, we read in uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians, Galatians 5, that we see the fruit of the Spirit, joy, love, peace, Self-control, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, goodness. Those are all fruit of the Spirit. That's what the Spirit is producing in the followers of Christ. All of these things. And so as those things are being produced, they're evident in our lives. People are seeing that. And they're glorifying the Father. They're glorifying the Lord. Now, I know if you're like me, you might think, well, I'm pretty good at one or two of those things, but I'm not good at patience. I'm not good at kindness. It doesn't mean we go, okay, I need to be better at being kind. Because right before that, the Bible says that if we will walk in the Spirit, if we will abide in the Spirit, abide in the Lord, then what will happen is we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So the answer to being more loving, more kind, more joyful, more gentle, more patient, is to say I need to abide in the Lord to a greater degree because I'm not giving appropriate time to that. And this is true. We see this practically. When you don't spend time with the Lord in the morning in prayer or time in his word, you get a little more frustrated through the course of the day. You get a little more impatient. You're a little more worked up. You feel a little more stressed out. But when you spend time in his word, there's that peace that passes all understanding. 
that peace through the Spirit, John chapter 14, verse 27, that we have just been gifted this wonderful peace. And we don't spend time with him so we'll get that peace. We spend time with him because the peace is already present. We've just chose to ignore it. That's so important we get this. I don't go to the word and the prayer in the morning. Okay, Lord, I want your peace today. So I'm going to read for 20 minutes and pray for 15 minutes. And at the end of that, I'll have your peace. No, no, no. The peace is given in the spirit in the moment of salvation. But for whatever reason, I've, I've chose to ignore that. And I'm focused on other things. And so what I do is I spend time with him. And through that time, the Lord will begin to reveal to me the peace that I already have in Christ. It's already there. But for whatever reason, we've chose to ignore it. So there again is fruits that's being talked about here. So that's how some of the ways we demonstrate this abiding that is in Christ. But I also believe we demonstrate the abiding in Christ through kind of the two basics we're going to talk about this morning. Now, for time's sake, I can already tell that we're going to probably just get to one of these two, which is totally fine. I kind of was prepared for that anyway, but I don't want to rush through either of these. And those two basics that we're going to talk about, and I I warn you, um, stay with me. Because I know that when we hear these two things, some of us will be tempted to go, oh, I already know everything about those two areas. And that's baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so I want to encourage you this morning. We're going to talk about these two areas as basics of the Christian faith. And by the way, these have been core essentials of the faith since the founding of the church. These are things that unite all believers together for over 2,000 years. Different denominations, different backgrounds, different traditions, many of which will tell you that their core ordinances of the church, the two core things that function as a church to communicate the gospel are baptism and the Lord's Supper. And we understand that some have some different views on those two things, but they have been in existence and implemented in the church since the beginning. So I believe that baptism and the Lord's Supper communicate and demonstrate that abiding that we have in Christ. Now, as a, as a Baptist church, and we don't shy away from that, we are a Baptist church by our denomination, we believe that there are only two ordinances given to the local church, and those two are baptism and the Lord's Supper or communion. Other churches may add things to that. Some churches or some denominations believe that foot washing is an ordinance given to the local church. We do not believe that that is an ordinance. Nothing wrong with it. Nothing wrong with doing that to demonstrate servanthood and serving others as Christ served his disciples. But we don't see that repeated later in the New Testament as far as an ordinance as we do baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so I want to pause here for just a moment. I don't want to go too long on this. But we're getting back to the basics. And so we're talking about overall Christian heritage and faith. But I want to talk specifically for a moment about, as a Baptist church, some distinctives, some characteristics of our church that we hold to as a church that would help understand maybe a little bit better those ordinances of Lord's Supper and baptism. Now, let me say again, we do not believe that there's only one denomination that has this all figured out. We understand that there are many denominations, many denominations of the same name that function differently, to be fair. Uh, One church may have the same name on the sign as this church has on the sign, but you walk in the doors, very different, okay? So we understand that sometimes it's hard to take a broad brush and really make a paint stroke and say, everyone under this banner or this denomination is the same. 
But I want to make sure that as we're going back to the basics, we don't just talk about the overall Christian values and essentials, but we're going to talk specifically about why we continue to choose to be a Baptist church. Because there's a lot of Baptist churches that have dropped the name Baptist out of their name. And in fact, most, I would suggest most what are considered by many non-denominational churches, because they have like a one-name title, which there's getting to be some interesting names of churches in our world today, by the way. It's just, I was driving down, I think there's one in uh, Warren. I think it might be in Warren. It's as I'm getting on 696. It's like 11 mile. That's like Warren, right? I'm pretty sure it was Paradox Church. And I was with Pastor Grant and we were driving and I saw the sign. And it just said Paradox Church. And as I was driving, I'm like, we both saw it. And we were like quiet for a few minutes. And I was like, what's the Paradox do you want to find out? And we, so we spent like literally, I don't know, 40 minutes or something talking about Paradox Church and what's the paradox and why do you call it Paradox Church? But I mean, there's all kinds of, I mean, I know um, I had a friend who planted a church. He just called it um, Audacity Church. So just some inferences and names out there. A lot of these churches have a one name title. Nothing wrong with that. I'm, I'm maybe poking a little bit of fun at some of the names because I just find them interesting. But a lot of people go, oh, it's a non-denominational church. But if you actually get into their doctrine, that's where we want to go this morning. If we go into their doctrine, you're going to find out they're mostly going to be a Baptist church or at least an evangelical church. Because there's a lot of churches that I know of, friends that have taken a church and pastored a church that was such and such Baptist church. And then they dropped Baptist off and then they kept the teaching the exact same. Because the doctrine is fine. The reason most people have changed and taken Baptist out of the name of their church is because Baptists got associated with a style of church or legalism in the church. And so what happens is people go, well, you know, I don't want to be associated with the negative side of Baptist churches. And so we'll just drop it all together. And I'm, I'm, that's their choice. That's their decision. We, however, as a church, because we had that opportunity a few years back, some people suggested that maybe we should try that. Our decision was, though, as a leadership at the time, was that rather than removing a name that stands for, in church history, by the way, some very important key fundamental doctrines that are not in error, nothing wrong with them, instead of dropping that, let's in turn remove the legalism and remove the methodology from what it never was supposed to be anyway. So what I want to do is I want to share with you just some simple distinctives of what our church believes in regards to why we still continue to be a Baptist church. I'm not going to dive too far in each one of these, but I want to give you the key distinctives of our church. And again, in this is Lord's Supper and baptism. So the first thing that the Baptist church, and again, this is a general distinctive. Many Baptist churches have deviated from this in the form of legalism and things like this, which we would very much disagree with. But these key distinctives are this. So first is Bible authority. We believe as a church that the Bible is the sole authority for our faith and practice. That this book is sufficient and complete, that it will guide us in all that we believe and all that we do as a church. We don't need, now there's other resources out there that are great, other helps and tools and great things that, that God has given man to write. I love my commentaries. I love reading of different authors throughout history, pastors and leaders. But this book is sufficient for all that we need. Primarily, we don't need someone in the Vatican to add something, put his seal on it, and say, now this is equal to God's word. We don't believe that. I don't need someone 
to tell me, well, you need to do X, Y, and Z, and that's on the same level as God's word. God's word is God's word. There's nothing that rivals God's word. It is sufficient. It is our sole authority for faith and practice. Also, we believe in what's called the autonomy of the local church. All that means is we are self-governing. We do not have a hierarchy outside of our church that governs our church. We believe our church can govern our church as a local church. We also believe in what's called the priesthood of the believer. That means that you individually, through Christ, have access to God. You don't have to go through anyone else to get to him. If you know Christ, you can pray to Christ. You can pray to the Father. You don't have to call me up and I have to pray for you and be your conduit to God. That's not in scripture. So we believe in the priesthood of the believer. We also believe that you've been given gifts and talents by the spirit to be used for his glory. And again, that is individual to you as a priest, as one who has been given this privilege to lead people to Christ. Now we know you're not going to function in the office of priest. What we mean is by that priesthood, we mean you have individual access to God like a priest would in the Old Testament. Okay? The other thing we believe as a church, one of our core distinctives is we believe there are two offices of leadership, pastor and deacon. We believe that those two offices are revealed in scripture and again are sufficient for leadership of the local church. We also believe in a distinctive considered individual soul liberty. What does that mean? Individual soul liberty. We believe that means you have the responsibility to receive Christ or reject Christ individually. No one can save you apart from Christ and you receiving Christ. You have individual soul liberty. You have the liberty given to you by God as an individual to choose, will you be saved or will you not? Also, that foundational distinctive was really actually, and I don't want to dive too far into this, really vital in the founding of our nation, by the way. And actually, I was just talking to somebody yesterday, the founding of our country and the ideas that led to the founding of our country and the constitution that we stand by actually began to be formed in the pulpit by people preaching, you have the right as an individual. God has given you rights and freedoms and individuality and freedom as an individual to have liberty before God. And those ideals started in scripture and led to what we consider freedoms and rights that we hold to as a citizen of this country. So again, these are even founded in those ideas. And lastly, another one that is very popular among some, the separation of church and state. The separation of church and state is actually a Baptist distinctive. Now, the first Baptist church actually began in the 1600s. So again, we're not claiming that some people claim that there's always been the Baptist church. That's not true. The Baptist church as a denomination started at a certain point in church history. However, we would suggest the teachings, the doctrines, the ideals behind these things obviously are found in the New Testament. Now, separation of church and state. This is a phrase that is famous due to a letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote to the Danbury Baptist of Connecticut in January of 1802. And so Jefferson's exact words in that letter were this, quote, building a wall between church and state because, quote, religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God. So some of us think, and some in our culture think, that this phrase is in the Constitution. It is not. It is not in the Constitution. And in fact, it only goes one way. 
according to our founding fathers. And what I mean by that is this. In the founding of our nation, our church or the church greatly influenced the government. But nowhere should the government ever come in and influence the church, right? Yeah, amen, absolutely. And we're seeing that today, by the way. We're seeing infringing upon these things. And it's tried to happen under many different times of history. But ultimately, in Scripture, we see that we as Christians influence our government. But the government does not come into this church and say, this is what you teach and this is what you preach and this is okay and that's not okay. God's word determines that because the Bible is our sole authority for faith and practice, not the government. Now saying that, some people have thought, even in churches, it would be so great if our nation, our government was solely Christian, like a state church. History has shown us that doesn't work. Because in a state church, what happens is not true conversions, but it ends up becoming forced conversions. And actually, in some instances in history where certain people got in power and they began to influence and enforce Christian values, apart from a relationship with Christ, it becomes legalism. And it's now a forcing of where there's actually examples in history where Christians took land from non-Christians because they weren't Christians. And so again, we have to remember human nature comes into all of this. And that's why I love that our founding fathers with great foresight laid forth principles and patterns that would lead us to understand that yes, the church can influence the government. The body of Christ influences the morality of our government, but never should the government influence or tell the church what it can and can't do. Lastly, the last distinctive of the Baptist church or generally speaking is two ordinances. Two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. So with that foundation and with the few moments we have left, let's dive into this topic of baptism. And then we'll talk about Lord's Supper next week. If you have any questions on anything we just talked about with these distinctives, please see me. And again, this is not to diminish or uh, degrade any other denomination. I'm merely saying to you, these are the distinctives that we hold as a church. There are other churches that hold some of these same distinctives. But there are some churches that will tell you, yeah, the Bible is our sole authority for faith and practice, but then they will show you in their practice that's not really true. And they will have offices like apostle or prophet that are preaching and teaching things that they claim are equal to God's word. At that moment, no longer is God's word your sole authority. You've added now man's word. And so again, there are some denominations that hold some of these things or maybe all of these things, but these are the distinctives that we hold as a church not mocking or or putting down anyone else. This is just what it is as far as how we hold our leadership. So what is baptism? Go with me to Matthew chapter 28. So you're in John. Go back just a couple books to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. And we're going to talk about baptism for our remaining time this morning. So Matthew 28 verses... 18 through 20. This is considered the great commission. Jesus commissioning his disciples as he's preparing to leave them to ascend into heaven. It says here, and Jesus came and spake unto them, Matthew 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and spake unto them saying, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son And of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. 
So Jesus told his disciples that those who come to faith are to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This signifies their new life in Christ. So what is baptism? The first thing is it's commanded by God's word. Baptism is commanded by God's word. Now, if you notice there in verse 19 and 20, it says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations. That first teaching we believe is the gospel. That's the communicating of the gospel. That's communicating faith in Christ. Once they've received that faith, then they are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then the second teaching is what we would call discipleship. So the first teaching you could say is evangelism. Then they are baptized and then they are discipled. And that's the pattern we see in the New Testament. Multiple times you will see individuals that will say, what keeps me from being baptized? Well, do you believe? The Ethiopian eunuch is a great example of that in Acts chapter 8. So again, this idea of baptism is commanded by God's word that those in Christ are commanded to be baptized. Now, the word baptize in the Bible is actually in the original language, the, word, the Greek word baptizo. And that Greek word baptizo actually is just transliterated into English as baptize. We just dropped the O and add the E. The word literally means to be immersed, put under the water, to be immersed or placed under. This symbolizes the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. The coming out of the water symbolizes the resurrection. The going into the water symbolizes the death and burial. And again, that's why we talk about this resurrected life, this newness of life that Paul talks about in Romans, that when we are brought up out of the water, it's symbolizing this newness of life that we have in Christ. Christians since the early church have practiced baptism, and even over the centuries, it continued to be seen as an act of immersion. Even into the time of the Reformation, the 1500s, there was many of the church fathers declared it is by immersion, it is by the placing under and the coming out of the water that we see baptism taking place. Now again, baptism is not a part of salvation. It is not included in our salvation process. It is evidence of our salvation. It is proof or the demonstration that we have faith in Christ. We are demonstrating that faith before Others, We are showing others that we are not ashamed of the gospel, that we are not ashamed of Christ. We are publicly demonstrating that we are dead to our old selves, our old sin, and we are alive anew in Christ. And that is what baptism represents. It is not that if we are not baptized, we're not saved because the Bible makes it clear we're only saved in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And there are examples where individuals in scripture lead people to faith and encourage them in baptism. But there's other examples where they lead them to faith and there's not as much talk of baptism. And so again, it's not baptism is not part of salvation. It's evidence of our faith that we've come to know Christ. So baptism is commanded by God's word. It is something that we are commanded to do because it demonstrates that faith. It's a testimony of our relationship with Christ. But not only is it commanded by God's word, it is also a way that we are connected to the local church. It connects us to the local church. When we are baptized in and through the local church, we are joining with that family to celebrate Christ. It is a symbolic gesture to say we as a church body are one body. We are unified together. Baptism actually did exist in the Old Testament. 
It was a form of taking somebody who was a non-Jewish person and they want a Gentile and they wanted to come to the Jewish faith. They would be baptized, symbolizing them entering into the Jewish faith. And so when John the Baptist is in the wilderness and he's preaching that all must be baptized unto repentance, again, setting the stage for the coming of Christ, he's saying Jew and Gentile. And many of the Jews were offended by that because we don't need to be baptized. We're Jews by birth. We have the right of Abraham. We have the right of God as our father. We don't need your baptism. But John was laying a foundational groundwork to understand that in Christ, we are all equally in need of a savior. And through Christ, we are all equally saved by grace. And we are made one in the body of Christ. And so baptism connects us to the body. It demonstrates physically what's happening spiritually. When we are saved, the Holy Spirit takes us from outside the body of Christ and spiritually places us in the body of Christ. And we become sons and daughters of God, according to God's word. And then that takes place, that spiritual baptism, if you will, then water baptism demonstrates that spiritual reality. And that is the beauty of why baptism connects us to the local church. Now, church tradition holds that baptism was very important. And I absolutely love this in church tradition. So one of the things the church would do is many of you know about the, the, the time of Lent before Easter. And so a lot of times what Lent has become today is we take something that we really probably shouldn't be doing anyway, and we go, I'll give that up for Lent. Probably should just give that up altogether, but we get the principal idea is that we should sacrifice something in symbolic ways, um, connecting with the sacrifice of Christ and what he gave up for the 40 days that he was in the wilderness preparing for his ministry. The actual church tradition of Lent is slightly different. And what they would do is they would give up things in, a, in kind of a connected way to Christ giving up things and sacrificing. But also during the time of Lent, they looked at it as a great time of preparing for celebration. Lent was actually not a time of sorrow, but a time of praise. A time of such excitement to think about that they were going to celebrate that Christ rose from the dead. And one of the things they would do is if there was a new convert, they would take all of the time that Lent would be going on and they would be discipling that new convert, training them up in the basics of the faith, preparing them for what it means to be a follower of Christ. And then on Easter morning, they would baptize them. And I absolutely love the picture of that, that this new convert is growing and learning as they are learning about the sufferings of Christ and the ministry of Christ, they're being discipled in the things of Christ, and then they're baptized on Easter morning. And what a more perfect way to symbolize new life in Christ than the morning that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so I love that tradition. But you see, again, the value and the weight that baptism has carried in church history. So baptism does not save us. If you're here and you were baptized as an infant, that did not save you according to God's word. That did not give you any merit or any greater opportunity to be saved than anyone else. Again, in church history, there was a moment where individuals were given more power than they should. And as those individuals in church leadership were given more powers than they should, they began to change and and say, well, we can do it this way, and we can do it that way, and, and you know what, why don't we do it this way? And, and infant baptism began to be practiced with good intentions. The idea of preparing the child for salvation, similar to what we would consider a baby dedication or a child dedication today. But it morphed into, over centuries, this idea of you have to be baptized as a child to be saved as a young man or woman, and then follow Christ. And legalism began to be attached to it. 
So if you're here and you were baptized as a child, I'm so thankful that your parents valued the heritage of faith that they wanted to place into your life, that they saw that as necessity and, and, and wanted you to go through that so that because they believed that would help you to be saved. Now, what a treasure that they loved you that much. They wanted to do that for you. But according to scripture, that if you have baptized as an infant, but you do not know Christ today, you are not saved. Because salvation only comes in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And I believe there are many in the world today that are so confused because they were baptized as a child and they thought they were good. And they're in the world today and they hear the gospel preached and they feel the conviction of the spirit, but they've been taught wrongly that that baptism as a child somehow saved them. So they dismiss the conviction of the spirit and think they're fine. But in reality, the spirit is drawing them under repentance because they need Christ. And then we have believers who are fully saved, fully in Christ, but for whatever reason have chosen to not be baptized. And the Bible says that it's not required unto salvation, but it is commanded to demonstrate our faith publicly and to follow in baptism, taking that step of our faith journey. It is important that we follow God's lead on this. And if he commands it, we submit to it. And so that, as we kind of dive through the basics this morning, and I know there was a lot of information this morning, and I pray it was beneficial to you. But I wanted to just kind of start there this morning, and then next week we'll talk about communion and the Lord's Supper. But I, I do believe that baptism and the Lord's Supper demonstrate that abiding relationship that we have in Christ. It's evidenced in salvation when we begin that journey. It's evidenced in our walk with Christ through time in his word, prayer, and church involvement. It's evidenced when we go before the church and we're baptized publicly. And we're going to find out next week it continues through our Christian life through the Lord's Supper. Let's pray and have a time of invitation. Father, we thank you for this morning. And Father, we thank you for your word that goes before us. We thank you that we are given the gift of abiding. That we can abide in you and you will, by your grace, abide in us. Lord, one of the most amazing things of that passage in John 15 is not so much that we can abide in you but that you would choose to abide in us in our weakness and our frailty and our unfaithfulness. But Lord, you say that you want to have a relationship with us. The apostle Paul says it, that we know you, but rather you or that we are known by you. What a gift of that relationship that we have. And I pray that our relationship in Christ will be built not upon legalism, church membership, or any other thing, but built solely on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And that out of that foundation comes that wonderful, blessed Christian walk that we can understand that we're abiding continually. Again, evidence through the fruit that you produce, evidence through the baptism that we take part in as a believer. And Lord, also evidenced as we continue that relationship through communion. And so Father, in all these things, we pray that you have been glorified. I pray that you'd give us wisdom and understanding. And Lord, I do pray, if there's anyone here, Lord, that has never followed you in believer's baptism, I pray that they would make that choice today. And maybe there in their seats, they'd begin praying now about what it is that's holding them back from that or what are the roadblocks to that. And, and maybe just ask for strength or wisdom to overcome those things. Maybe they would come forward and bend a knee and, and just confess and admit that they need to be baptized as you command them to. And maybe they would come and pray and ask for wisdom in that. 
And so, Lord, in all these things, we pray that you'd give us wisdom, that you would be glorified. And, Father, as we lay out these key things that our church desires to be built upon, I pray that first and foremost, that we say the Bible is our sole authority for faith and practice. I pray that that starts in our individual lives where the Bible is our authority. We submit to the Bible because it is God's word. And then from that, we see that fruit being produced. And so, Lord, not as a church only, but also as individuals. So, Lord, maybe there's somebody here today that would come forward and say, you know, Lord, my life is not really being led by your word. It's being led by my opinions, my ideas, my desires. And so maybe somebody would come this morning and pray and say, Lord, would you help me to put that into practice? That your word would guide me above all things. And so, Father, again, we thank you for all of this and all that we've been a part of this morning. Pray that you've been glorified. And if anyone needs to know Christ, I pray they would be drawn to salvation this morning by receiving the gift of salvation for themselves. Father, we love you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet as we're led in a song of invitation? Would you come and pray here at the altar or there in your seats, whatever God is doing? Would you just connect with him this morning and ask him to affirm those things that he's leading you in? as we go before him and worship in this song.